Good morning. Um, it is so good to be with you all this morning. This is, I was telling Pastor Stephen, my third time being in person in a church in this pandemic. Um, so it's weird, and I want to give you all hugs, and then I realize I can't. Um, but I'm just grateful to be with you all. As the video showed, Amira is an organization that works with women who are sex trafficked, sexually exploited, and prostituted. And we're in your backyard. We have a, a safe home in the North Shore of Boston. We have another safe home in the greater Hartford area of Connecticut. And we also have a community resource center in Lynn. And so we have a lot of things going on. And I'd love to you know, talk with you more about that. There's information that you can grab as well, too. But I will just say this, because I always love to just give a little bit of hope. That video showed a woman named Jessie, who's a graduate of our program, our residential programs. And we actually hired Jessie last year. So not only is she a graduate, she now works for us and she now pours back into the women that she has a common experience with, loving them like Jesus loves. And so it's an amazing, amazing thing that we get to be a part of in this good work that God is doing. I want to share a little bit about myself. I am an avid reader. I like to read big books. And I have a habit when I was in college, when you're supposed to be studying for your exams, I would pick up the largest, biggest book possible and just read that instead of studying. Somehow God helped me and I still got good grades, but I would just kind of ignore like, oh, I should be studying this or doing that. And instead I read, you know, like all of the Lord of the Rings, all three in a week. Or I read Les Mis um, one, one time when I was supposed to be studying. It was just, you know, something I like to do. And when I, I dive into stories, I also then like to figure out, well, why did this person write this? And what, were the, what was going on? And so then I start like picking up other books, you know, about like Napoleon, if I'm reading Les Mis, or I would, you know, read a whole bunch of stuff about Tolkien and the Inklings and figure out all this stuff, you know, about Lord of the Rings. And that's what I, I love to do, just figure out what's going on. So when we read the story of the woman at the well, I come to this saying, what on earth is going on? Because there's a lot of things here, if I'm reading this with my you know, 21st century lens, that I just do not understand. And so I come away with it with three questions. The first question I have is, who on earth are the Samaritans? And what is this whole region of Samaria? And so the first thing that we should know is that in Israel, there is the section of Judea and there's the section of Galilee and in between these two is this area called Samaria and in order to go from the city of Jerusalem all the way up to the city of Capernaum which is where Jesus was traveling you would have to go through Samaria now there were some Jews that decided they would not want to travel in Samaria and so instead what they would do is they would go into Jerusalem they would go all the way over to the Jordan River, and they would go north on the Jordan River and not touch foot into Samaria because they did not want to touch the land of Samaria because they were extremely hate-filled about this land. Samaritans were the children of mixed marriages. So the Samaritans were the children of Jews and non-Jews. And for the Jews, they had a problem with this. It was a reminder to them of their sin for so many years and of the fact that they rejected God. And so they, they put that feeling of 
well, we did something wrong onto these people, and they decided to hate them. So the Samaritans were outcasts. They didn't really grasp God because they weren't welcomed in by the Jews. They didn't really grasp his message. They were rejected by them. In the process, the Samaritans decided, well, we're going to build a temple so we can worship. And so they did that in their land on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. And they built this temple there. And about 150 years before Jesus was born, the Jews went up and destroyed their temple. Talk about a hate-filled action. They completely wiped it out, and they decided, no, 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 no. You don't even deserve to worship the God that we worship. This is racism at its worst. There was political and religious tensions between the two. And if you were a good Jew, you would literally walk hundreds of miles out of the way not to even go into this land. So that was the first question I had when I come to this story. The second question is, what's up with all the gender discrimination in the Bible? Can I just say it? Women are portrayed as prostitutes and harlots, and they have colorful pasts. And I just never really understood this as I was reading the Bible as a kid growing up. Like, why are all these women seen as, as terrible people? So we live in a time when we're a woman, we are told, you know, we can roar and we can go get them and we can do all these things. And we're empowered and it's wonderful. But in the time of the Bible, it was so much different. There was actually a prayer that some Jews would pray that would say, well, thank you, God, that you did not create me as a Gentile or a woman. That's pretty harsh. It's not a hatred of women that they had, though. It's just the fact that it's a patriarchal society. So women could not get a job. They could not talk to men in public. They had no skills to be trained in. They did not have inheritance. So if you were, the, if you were a father and you only had daughters, your money went to somebody else after you died. In order to be successful as a woman, you had to have a husband. You needed a man in order to sustain life at this time. And if your husband died, you were tainted, you were, off, you were left to fend for yourself, you had to glean from the fields as Ruth did, you had to look for scraps from the table as that woman did with Jesus, and lastly, the last resort you would do would be to sell your body, just so you could put food on the table. Now, the Bible does not command, commend harlots, saying that this is a good thing. It's just commenting on what's happening. And this happened quite often. The third question that I have when I come to the story is, what is the main source of water in Israel? Now, for us, we can turn on our faucet, get a nice cold cup of water, or you can grab a bottle of water. Water is pretty much everywhere for us. But in Israel, which is a desert, water is something that is literally life for you. And either you need to get a jug and walk all the way to a stream or a river and get that jug filled with water and bring it all the way back to your house, or you could have somebody dig a well and dig it deep enough that it might find water in the ground. Otherwise, it'll just collect rainwater, which is kind of like what a cistern is. And so it's just water just kind of sitting there. It's kind of, you know, stale, not really having a ton of life in it. It will help you out still, but it's just not that really cool, wonderful, refreshing water that you long for. So water 
is an incredible, important uh, source for the people of Israel because of the terrain that they live in. And the people that would get the water for their families, for their towns, for whoever, was the women. That was part of their job. They would rise up early in the morning, get the water for the day, and go about their day. So that helps us to understand this story a little bit. So the first thing that we discover in this story, which Pastor Stephen read, is that when you meet Jesus, he does not care for boundaries. Jesus has to head from Jerusalem and go to Galilee. Now he's a rabbi, he's a religious leader, he has some considerable clout about him. I mean, if you read the stories before, thousands and thousands of people are coming to see him, they long to hear him, they long to be touched by him, they want to be healed. And yet Jesus is not a good rabbi. He does not go by the Jordan River and start walking north into Galilee. He goes straight through Samaria. Not only does he walk through Samaria, but he actually stops in Samaria. He doesn't just, you know, try to get through it as quickly as possible. He stops because he's tired, he's having a long day, and he's thirsty. Now, we could sit back and say, well, like, isn't Jesus God? This is pretty amazing that he's thirsty. And we can dive into the fact that he's man and he's God and do this whole big, huge thing. And I, I'm just going to say that I don't think that's really what the story's about. I think what is surprising here is not that he's thirsty, but that he's in Samaria, that he sits down at a well, and he starts talking to a woman. All things that never would have been done. The very fact that he speaks to her at all is so amazingly groundbreaking in and of itself. What I find to add to all of this is that instead of speaking to her in some derogatory way, like, woman, get me a drink, you're terrible, you're, you're a Samaritan, you, you must do this for me. He doesn't throw a racial slur at her. He doesn't say some charged political statement. He just asks her for help because he's thirsty. He acknowledges that he has a need and she can actually help him with it. Within the first paragraph of this story, Jesus has already become the crusher of cultural barriers. The political tension, the racial hate, the gender divide, none of these things matter to Jesus. He has broken down boundaries because he's on a mission. The people around him just don't realize that yet. He has taken a step into Samaria, he sat down at a well, and he has let his desire for a drink open up a, con a communication to a woman who is out there in the middle of the day. So woman, will you give me a drink? Instead of dipping her bucket into the well, she brings up the boundaries. Like, you're a man, I'm a woman, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, are you crazy? What are you doing? So she doesn't give him a drink. And because of this, Jesus, who's on a mission, offers her living water. So clearly this statement confuses her because living water is water that moves. And there's no river nearby. In fact, there's a well dug here because there's no river nearby. So she probes Jesus more, and she brings up the political tension that's present, asking, how on earth can you provide me with living water? 
They're sitting at the only nearby water source right now, the well that Jacob built. Jacob, the father of the people of Israel, not the father of the Samaritans. But Jacob built this well in the land that the Samaritans live now. She's looking to pick a fight. She's bringing this up to try to kind of charge him up a bit. But Jesus doesn't bite. Because when you meet Jesus, he will break down every boundary. Not only will he break all the political and economic and racial boundaries that are put up, but as the story continues, we see that when you meet Jesus, he doesn't care for excuses, for poor reputations, and for shame. She brings up the excuse, how on earth are you going to give me living water? This well has been here for generations. Essentially saying, I know my land, Jew. There's no rivers around here. Jesus won't respond to this, though. Instead, he explains to her about this living water that he has. You see, it's not just some cool, refreshing stream that you need to go to every single day because you're thirsty every single day. This living water is one that when you drink it, you are never going to thirst again. In fact, the water will actually spring up inside of you, overflowing. It's that image that we have in in Psalm 23, where the psalmist writes that God prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This water that the Jewish rabbi is going to provide will quench an epic thirst. The woman suddenly forgets about all of her objections and her politically charged statements. And now she just asks him, hey, give me this water. She never wants to be thirsty again. She absolutely never wants to have to return to this well again. She has an epic thirst. And here's where Jesus begins to break down the poor reputation. She, like every other woman in the town, is here at this well to collect water for her household. This is not a weird thing. But yet she's out there at noon. It does not take a brain surgeon to know that if you are in the Middle East in a desert, you do not go out at noontime, right? You get up before the sun rises when it's nice and cool, and that's when you run your marathons. But here she is in the middle of the day collecting water for her household. Why is she there at noon? Did she sleep in? Was she not feeling well in the morning? Were her kids being a pain in her butt? What is going on? So Jesus simply probes, go call your husband and come here. She has asked him to give him living water, so Jesus is going to provide it for her and for everybody that she is with. Go get your husband. And this is where it gets really tricky for her. It's almost like she kind of backs up. Well, you see, you know, mm, this, this stranger here, I don't, I don't have a husband. And Jesus responds, yes, you're right. You're right, of course. You've answered absolutely correctly because the truth is, is that you've had five husbands and the man that you're currently with is not your husband. Jesus could have figured out a lot about this woman by the fact that she was there at noon in the middle of the day. He could have figured out that she has a, a poor reputation, that nobody wants to be around her. It's quite clear and obvious that she's unliked, that she's marginalized. But Jesus could not have figured out that she has had five husbands by the fact that she's there at noon. He must be a prophet. You have had five husbands. 
whether they're all dead or they divorced her, that statement alone reveals a world of hurt and pain that she's had to walk through and live through. Remember, a woman can't live on her own and survive in this kind of society. So she has to find a man just to be able to live. She has to do this time and time again and get to the point where she's now on her fifth husband, sixth husband, and he won't even take her to be his wife because he's number six. The only word that I can think of when I, when I attempt to put myself in her shoes is shame. It's the word that comes to my mind with, with anybody that has a, a type of past where you're like, I just don't want anybody to know about this. Where if people were really, to really know my sin, to really know my thoughts, that, that utter, like, I just want to be hidden. I don't want to be known like this. It's the word that each woman at Amira battles. Because if you're at Amira, you're there because some pretty terrible things happened. Jesus knows her deepest secrets. He knows the years of pain, the regrets that she has. He knows the narrative that has been written on her life for all the town to see. He knows who she is why she's there in the middle of the day. And the greatest thing to know is that this does not stop him from offering her living water, which will quench her epic thirst. He still offers her a drink. Jesus reveals all of this to her, and she does what anyone would do when they are in that kind of situation. She's backed up into, quarter, into a corner, and so she puts up a protective wall immediately. And she starts to bring up the political racial tension again. Clearly this man is a prophet of some sort. She's, she revealed nothing to him and he knows everything all, all of a sudden. And so instead of responding to this and dealing with the shame that she's feeling, she decides, I'm going to ask questions that every Samaritan should be asking between the Jews and the Samaritans for centuries now. Which mountain are we supposed to worship on? Where am I supposed to go to worship? You see, Jew, I had a mountain I worshipped on, but you destroyed it. You came in and tore our temple down. So if you want to air my dirty laundry, I know yours too. She thought she had him. But what she doesn't realize is that when you meet Jesus, he doesn't care about religious traditions or politics or anything to do with any of that. Where are we supposed to worship, Jewish stranger? Jesus' response is so incredible. Worship's not going to be confined to a place or to a people group. Worship is going to happen because God is actually seeking people out, calling to them and offering them living water, that they may worship in spirit and truth, wherever, whenever, however. Worship is not about a place or a building or a location or a tradition or even a language. It's not about saying the right words at the right time in the right order in order to unlock some sort of secret key to have a good thing going with God. 
Worship and faith should not be driven by a need to be right, but by a deep desire, an epic thirst that you want and need to have fulfilled. Worship, true worship, is a response to having your need met. So what is your need then? The woman finally grasps it and says, I know that the Messiah is coming. And Jesus reveals to her what he has known from the moment that he set foot into Samaria. The moment that he knew this this was coming. This is the mission. This is why I came to this place and sat down for a drink. I am he of whom you speak. He is the Messiah. She has tried to stop him from speaking to her because of the cultural boundaries. She has questioned his motives and even his ability to offer her something as amazing as living water. And when he reveals to her what he knows about her, she brings up religion and tradition and politics and all of the backstory with that. But Jesus does not quit on her because Jesus does not quit. Jesus will break down all of the walls in order to fulfill all of your true needs. I know the Messiah is coming. I am he of whom you speak. She doesn't just need a way out of her life. She doesn't just need another man to come along to try to help her for a little bit. She doesn't need a secret hidden stream where she can go to get her water away from everybody else in the town. She doesn't need a mountain or a temple to go in order to worship God and ask for forgiveness. She needs the Messiah. Her epic thirst is the thirst that we all have. It's the thirst that this world has. The world has every excuse in the book. How many times have you heard how busy we are? There's a pandemic going on. Work is really getting to me. I have to get that promotion. I lost my job. I have to spend my time trying to find another one. My kids, there's just so much going on with me trying to teach them common core math and figure things out. And trust me, I understand the common core math thing. I don't really like going to church. It's a bunch of old people, and I don't really want to do that. The world is full of traditions and religion. Like, well, I grew up Catholic. Or I've known God forever. Or I go to church, or I watch church online, or I watch that preacher on TV. I've said a prayer once when I was a kid. I'm good. The world is full of political boundaries. How many times this year have you heard about people complaining about what somebody has said about something? Whether it's about what they said about the LGBTQ population, or about what they said about money, or about what they said about Black Lives Matter, or about what they said about that protest, or about what they said about that vaccination, or about whatever. We are living in the most politically charged time I have ever felt. So I can't go to a church because it's just too much right now. And what Jesus is saying to the world and to you and to me today is that none of these walls will quench 
your thirst. None of these things will quench your thirst. Only he can. Because he's the Messiah. He will quench your thirst. Nothing else will. We can try to fill up our lives with everything under the sun. But nothing will fulfill our lives until we meet the one who created them. God is the creator of each and every one of us. He knows us. I mean, he knows us. He knows our thoughts and our actions. He knows our best deeds and our worst sins. He knows when we feel shame over what we've done. He knows when we feel joy in our hearts. He knows when we feel isolated and alone. He knows when we are feeling pain and frustration. He knows everything that we are experiencing and feeling. And with knowing all of this, he still offers each and every one of us a drink. He still offers us eternal life. It does not matter what you've done in this life. It does not matter how much sin you feel like you've built up. It does not matter to him. He will never stop offering you living water. So as I close our time, I'd like to leave you with one question, and that's, are you thirsty? Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful that you came here, that you did not walk by us, that you are here in this place, in this city, in the work that we do at Amira, that you are here sitting down to talk to us, to listen to us, and to offer us eternal life. So right now, God, I pray for every person here that they would know that you can quench their thirst. I pray for every person here as they have somebody in their life that, that needs this message, that needs eternal life, that they would know that you are right there, ready to offer it. That you are offering it. Because this is what you do. Again and again and again. Thank you. For not walking past us. Thank you for sitting down with us. Thank you for looking past everything that we've done. And thank you for loving us in spite of everything we've done. It's in your name we pray. Amen.